Our Heavenly Father, today our prayer is for family. Make us into your family, a family united and strengthened by the Holy Spirit to be a healing force in our hurling world. Impress upon us the delight and the importance of connecting with children, not just our children, but all your children. Give us a vision of how you designed the church to be the larger context, a holy village of safety, challenge, adventure, instruction, nurture, and support for children to grow up to become vital disciples for the gospel. Grant our children many teachers, some of whom will become lifelong friends. Remind us of how children are God's gift to teach us humility and dependence. As Jesus taught us, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Break us out of our fellowships of similarity, as wonderful and long-standing as they may be, Help us to venture into new territory, for gray hairs to connect with teens, for singles to know the pleasure of giving birth to new converts, for young families to find a host of grandparents for their children, for the newcomer to be embraced like a long-lost friend, for the oppressed to find substantial and long-lasting relief, for women to find their voice and gifts equally alongside men. For the sick and the infirm to be visited and to know the joy of finding their weakness a stage for encouraging others. Prepare for the Baldwins, both Steve and Cheryl. Steve, who's finally now in um, physical therapy, is long suffering in the hospital. For Cheryl, who's in the hospital at Stanford with her kidney issues, bring them healing and comfort. And may our leaders, pastors and elders, be strengthened within and give much needed relief to those of them who are laboring under health issues and or oppressive circumstances. And may we, as your body, according to the riches of your glory, be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Jesus Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that we, we may be filled up with the fullness in God. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, as we turn now to our scripture reading, allow these words from Titus to center us on Christ. This is the word of the Lord from Titus chapter two. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to good deeds. Amen. Well, now it's time to dismiss our youth and children. And uh, while they're moving out, maybe you can move in a little bit so those at the back could find a seat. 
So kids, if you've checked in, you can head out to the back door, look for your teachers, and youth can head out with Becca. And I will invite up Eugene, who actually has a birthday tomorrow. No? This week, Wednesday. Wednesday. I invite Eugene up, who actually has a birthday on Wednesday. I'll take back your gift then. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Bye, guys. See ya. All right. It's good to be with you once again this morning. And I'd like to jump right in. We've got quite a bit to talk about today. In the eighth chapter of his gospel, the Apostle John recorded a conversation between Christ and some of the people who had just begun to believe his message. Christ offered them a promise, a promise that they didn't really know that they needed. Christ said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This promise is one of the most beautiful and powerful turns of phrase in the gospel full of beautiful and powerful turns of phrase. But it didn't land that way for the people who heard it for the first time. Christ's hearers weren't so impressed as they were confused. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Their response reminds me of that old saying, who discovered water? Well, it definitely wasn't the fish. These people recognized that in promising them freedom, Christ was implying that they had been enslaved. But just as a fish cannot recognize the water they've been in their whole lives, they couldn't recognize what had enslaved them. But Christ could. He answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is where Christ's conversation with the new believers took a turn for the worse. These new believers, or maybe we should call them now tentative believers, liked what Christ had been saying up to this point. But when he explained that they remained enslaved to sin, they took offense. Never in their lives had they considered themselves enslaved to anything, certainly not to sin. These were moral, upstanding Jews. How dare this man besmirch their good name? But like a doctor confident in their ability to treat their patient, Christ insisted on his diagnosis. He knew that deep down their hearts were unhealthy and he wasn't afraid to confront them because he knew what they needed to be healed, what they needed to experience true freedom from the sin that had enslaved them. If they were willing to receive his word, the word of Christ, to learn it and abide in it and set it at the corners of their hearts, they would then begin to understand the truth about God that Christ reveals in himself. The truth about what Christ was sent by God to do and by God's will is doing now and will do in the future. And this would enable them to not only recognize their enslavement to sin, but to begin experiencing freedom from it. But how does the truth of Christ free us from enslavement to sin? By changing what we believe about our identities and our destinies. What we believe drives what we do. And the truth of Christ has implications for what we believe about ourselves and about our futures. As we receive what it has to say about who we are and where we are headed, the truth slowly but surely replaces the lies that we've made or absorbed from the world around us. And that's when we begin experiencing true freedom from sin. 
as the lies are replaced with the truth and we begin seeing ourselves and the world around us in a new way, new possibilities emerge. New choices appear. New thoughts, new attitudes, and new actions become available to us that were never possible before. And we begin changing and growing and becoming something different than what we were, something truly good, something truly beautiful, something truly necessary in our disordered world. If you abide in my truth, Christ said, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Apostle Paul understood the power of the truth to set us free from enslavement to sin. Remember his encouragement to the Roman believers in Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul had experienced for himself being transformed by the renewal of his mind. His life was changed on the road to Damascus when Christ showed him the truth of his resurrection. Of course, he wasn't the only person to have experienced the transformative, liberating power of the truth. Each of the churches to whom he wrote letters had experienced freedom from enslavement to sin, or at least had begun to, because of the truth of Christ. And that includes the Colossian believers. You may recall that Paul spent the beginning of his letter to the Colossians celebrating the growth and the transformation they had begun to experience after coming to know the truth of Christ. And as our study of this letter brought us through the first four verses of chapter three, we were reminded of two particular corner piece truths about Christ. First, that Christ is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And second, Christ will return to share his resurrection with us. Paul urged the Colossian believers to set their minds on these truths. He knew that if they did, the lies they believed about themselves and about the world around them would continue to be undone, and they would continue growing and changing into all God had intended for them to become. Paul devoted the second laugh, sorry, the second laugh maybe too, but he devoted the second half of his letter to the Colossian believers to encouraging them and exhorting them along his journey along this journey of becoming who they were meant to be. Over the remaining 39 verses of the letter, Paul issued more than 20 explicit and implicit commands. The last two chapters of Colossians is essentially an unbroken chain of commands. And these commands address nearly every aspect of the Colossian believers' lives. Their personal character, their participation in the local church, their relationships with their families, their attitudes towards work, their ministry to the world around them, and their partnership with other believers in the mission of the global church. Now I understand how a list of commands might make some or many of us feel. Lists of commands in the Bible often instill more trepidation than excitement. They certainly do in me, at least initially. But when I resist the impulse to see these commands as a checklist to prove how good I am or more often than not how bad I am, when I quiet my ego for a moment and allow the commands to come together like pieces of a puzzle forming a picture, what I see in that picture is a glimpse of what freedom from enslavement to sin might look like in this world. And that is something truly good, truly beautiful, and truly necessary. Our study of the remainder of Paul's letter to the Colossians is going to take us through this list of commands. 
I hope you'll stick with me through these next five weeks and another five in May, God willing. To that end, let me pray once more for us before we dive into today's set of commands. Heavenly Father, we come to you, welcomed by your grace, covered by your spirit, filled with your love. And God, we ask, Lord, that as we look now into your word, as we look into these commands that you lay out for us in Colossians, that you would help us to see the beauty, Lord, of this life that you are envisioning for us, this life that you're taking us towards, this life of obedience, faith, and hope and love, God. God, would you help us to see that big picture and would you empower us by your truth to live it out? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our passage for today is Colossians chapter three, verses five through 11. This is a longer stretch of verses than we've studied in a while, and we certainly could approach them in smaller chunks, but I think there's value in taking all seven of these verses together today. Our passage can be divided into three sections, so let's begin with the first of those sections, just the first three verses. The first section of our passage begins with the stark command, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The Greek verb Paul used in this command, put to death, is a graphic term that can refer to amputation, especially when paired with what the English Standard Version renders here as what. Paul was commanded, I'm sorry, Paul commanded the Colossian believers to cut something out of their lives the way a surgeon might cut off a limb or some other part of a patient's body. What's wrong with the part in question? Why does it need to be removed? Well, it has been infected by earthliness. Put to death what is earthly in you. Like a limb infected with gangrene, the parts of their lives characterized by worldliness needed to be removed. Otherwise, the infection would spread and seriously threaten their well-being. Paul offered five examples of earthly parts needing removal, and as we'll see, they all have something in common. He wrote, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We could dive deeper into each one of these five terms, but it's sufficient for our purposes today to recognize the general connection they share. Each of them, either explicitly or implicitly, is an expression of sexual sin. And each can be expressed in turn in a wide range of behaviors. Adultery, whether with the body or in the mind. Sexual assault, real or fantasized. Inappropriate and or illegal sexual activity. Use of pornography, the list really could go on and on. Covetousness, which we typically associate with envy of others' belongings, can carry sexual overtones as well. We can covet spouses as well as houses sexual partners as well as cars and other things like that. And perhaps Paul's inclusion of covetousness in this list is a clue to the problem at the root of these sexual sins. Sexual sins are implicitly idolatrous in their search for pleasure outside of what God has faithfully provided. And sexual sins objectify the people involved, stripping them of their honor as beings created in God's image and reducing them to objects, reducing them to tools that can be used and discarded at will. God takes this idolatry and objectification of his image very seriously. Paul warned the Colossian believers, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Using others for, for self-gratification has no place among those who have shared in Christ's sacrificial death. 
And lest the Colossian believers think themselves above these sorts of sins, Paul reminded them, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, Paul commanded. The verb translated as put away also carries a sense of decisive removal, but this time of clothing rather than a body part. The Colossian believers had once clothed themselves in these behaviors, but now these clothes no longer fit. They must be cast off, discarded as rags that can't provide protection or comfort or covering. The them here in that command, but now you must put them all away, seems like it would refer to the sexual sins described above, but Paul actually used it to introduce another set of prohibited attitudes and behaviors, also five in number. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The common thread connecting these terms is antagonism and violence. These attitudes and behaviors, whether expressed verbally or physically, are often used to diminish and abuse, punish, or exploit other people. They make intimacy, trust, and safety impossible. But they can be effective in ensuring that a person gets their way and succeeds off of others' failures. And perhaps that is why Paul attached to these five attitudes and behaviors the command, do not lie to one another. While lies can go down smoothly, depending on the skill of the liar, in the end, lying can be just as exploitative and do just as much violence to others as wrath or malice. So whether verbal or emotional, whether spiritual or physical, violent antagonism has no place among those who have been raised with Christ. As Paul urged the Colossian believers, see that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul once again employed the imagery of changing clothes. Violent antagonism is part of the ill-fitting and threadbare rags of worldliness. In the past, the Colossian believers would clothe themselves in violent antagonism like the rest of the world. But now they were being renewed in knowledge after the image of their creator. And that brings us to the third part of our passage and the final set of things that need to go. Rather than listing attitudes or behaviors this time, Paul presented a series of labels people in the first century would use to categorize others and to identify themselves. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Greek and Jew, as many of us might know from previous studies, these are ethnic labels. Circumcised and uncircumcised, on the other hand, are religious labels, as we've seen actually before in this letter. The term barbarian functioned in the first century as a national, a nationalist label. It was used as a derogatory term for foreigners, foreigners to the Roman Empire who could not speak Greek or Latin. The term Scythian referred to an ethnic group, but it had become, by the first century, a cultural label for the unsophisticated and the unrefined. And of course, slave and free are social class labels, unfortunately still familiar to us in our day. So we once again have five items in our set. A pair of ethnic labels, a pair of religious labels, a national label, a cultural label, and a pair of social class labels. So many labels, so many categories. So many ways to divide people up, 
So many ways to prejudicially size people up or to stand taller and prouder because of how others categorize you. But Paul negated them all. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. These labels might carry weight and significance in this world, but not among those who have been raised with Christ and await his return. This is not to say, of course, that distinctions are not important. Far from it. They should be and will forever be celebrated in the kingdom of God. But the people of God do not base their worth, their value, their identity solely in being one thing as opposed to another. Rather, Christ is all and in all. Christ is the starting point and the ending point of every believer's true identity. And so there's no place among those whose truest, fullest lives are hidden with Christ and God. There's no place for prejudice and egotism based on worldly labels and standards. And I know that was a lot. We went through these verses pretty quickly. So let's take a moment to summarize what we found in this passage. Paul issued three prohibitions to the Colossian believers, either explicitly or implicitly. First, a prohibition against using others as objects for self-gratification. Second, a prohibition against violent antagonism, whether verbal or physical. And third, a prohibition against egotistically judging others according to the prejudicial labels of this world. Now, I think we would all agree that these are good commands, that these are good prohibitions. We'd all agree that followers of Christ should not objectify others to gratify themselves. And we'd all agree that believers in Christ should not be violent towards or, or antagonize or manipulate others. And we'd all agree that the people of God should not judge others by the standards and categories and labels of this world. I think we would, we would all agree with these prohibitions, but obeying them is an entirely separate issue, isn't it? Summarizing them in this way, it's easy to look at them and say, man, I, I like those prohibitions. They're good prohibitions. I agree with these prohibitions. But I must admit that following them in day-to-day -day life is not as easy. And that's because the sinful attitudes and behaviors Paul prohibited in these verses show up in many, many different ways. Many ways that aren't as obvious, aren't as extreme. Many ways that are quite socially acceptable even inside the church. We don't have to become a sex trafficker to objectify others to gratify ourselves. We just need a smartphone and some privacy, or even just a wandering eye. We don't have to join a gang and physically assault someone to be violently antagonistic. We just need a chance to share some undermining gossip about our coworkers with our boss. And we don't need to run for office on a platform of hate to be egotistically judgmental. All we have to do is laugh along with the racist, classist, sexist, ageist, or chauvinist joke, and maybe even tell one of our own. These sins might seem small to the world around us, or even to ourselves, but they aren't small to God. They matter to him, not because he is a demanding stickler, but because whether the sins are big or small, extreme or socially acceptable, they reflect the same unbelief in the truth of Christ. They show that we are still holding on to lies. What is the lie behind lust? 
What is the lie behind the temptation to use others as objects for self-gratification? Well, there are many, but one of them is that I am not loved, that I am not valued, that I am not enough, that I am not worth paying attention to or having my needs heard. I must treat others like objects to get them to give me something that resembles what I need because I'm unloved. What about antagonism? What is the lie behind the temptation to antagonize and manipulate and undermine others? Again, there are many, but one of them is that I am not safe. I'm not secure. I'm alone, and it is up to me to make sure that I get what I need. No one's coming to help me, and no one appreciates what I'm going through, so I must push others down to make my way forward. This world is zero sum. If they win, I lose. All because I am unsafe. What about egotism? What is the lie behind the temptation to judge others and to judge ourselves according to worldly standards? Again, there are many. But one of them is that I don't have an identity of my own. I don't have a place where I belong. Nobody knows me or cares to know me, so I must find a label to attach to myself. I need to find a standard that I can meet, that I can even excel at, even if it means reducing others, judging others, despising others, disdaining entire groups of people, because I am unknown. Brothers and sisters, these are all lies that I have believed at some point in my life, and even now to some degree. And as long as I believe them, they practically enslave me to the sins they stand behind. Whether the expression of that sin is big or small, shocking or banal, extreme or acceptable. And maybe you have believed in these lies at some point in your life as well. Maybe you have felt in your heart that you were not wanted or that you did not matter, that your needs weren't important or that you weren't good enough for others to care. Maybe you believed the lie that your value was in what you owned or what you drove, where you worked or lived or the color of your skin or of your ballot or the name on your diploma, or at the top of your offer sheet. And maybe believing in those lies practically enslaved you to attitudes and behaviors that helped you soothe the hurt, or protect your interests, or define your identity. And so even though you know those attitudes and behaviors are wrong and prohibited and not at all what God has intended for you, you turn to them again and again and again because the lie that you are unloved unsafe and unknown is still there. But Christ said that the truth would set you free. And we've been rediscovering truths about Christ. That Christ is ruling and reigning all reality from the right hand of God. That Christ will return and share his resurrection glory with us. So the question is, what do these truths have to say to the lies that we are unloved, that we are unsafe, and that we are unknown? The truth that Christ is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, it undoes the lie that we are unloved. The resurrection and the ascension of Christ proves that his death was truly innocent and not the result of any sins that he had committed. His undeserved death could be used then as a substitution for sinful people whose deaths were deserved. Indeed, Christ made clear that this was his intention in going to the cross. 
His resurrection and ascension proves that God accepted his sacrifice and now freely accepts those of us who have put our faith in Christ. And so the truth of Christ's rule and reign at the right hand of God is not just some abstract idea, some theological concept sitting up there in the clouds. No, it undoes the lie that we are unloved. The truth is that we are God's beloved. This truth of Christ's rule and reign also undoes the lie that we are alone and on our own to secure our happiness and well-being. The Christ who loved us to the very end of his life now reigns over all things from the very highest seat in heaven. The same love that drove him to the cross now drives the way he wields his crown. Though we may experience suffering at times or even throughout our lives, these sufferings come to us through the wise and faithful sovereignty of Christ. Even in these times, we are not alone. And Christ is working for our good. And so the truth of Christ's rule and reign at the right hand of God undoes the lie that we are unsafe. The truth is that we are secured by God in Christ. And the truth that Christ will return to share his resurrection glory with us undoes the lie that this life is all there is. That all our hope is for this life only. That who we are here is our only identity. No, brothers and sisters, there will be a second advent. Christ will return and bring with him our truest, fullest lives, our truest, fullest callings, our truest, fullest identities, who we truly, fully are, remains hidden for now, but it will one day be revealed in undeniable, everlasting, glorious life. And so the truth that Christ will return to share his resurrection glory with us undoes the lie that we are unknown. The truth is that we are fully known by God and we'll discover our true worth, our true selves when Christ returns. Brothers and sisters, do you see how the truth can set us free from our sins? When the truth of our belovedness replaces the lie that we are unloved, we are set free from the need to objectify others. We can see their dignity and belovedness too. And when the truth of our security replaces the lie that we are unsafe, we are set free from the need to compete, to go to war with others. We can be generous and empathetic even with our enemies. And when the truth of our identity replaces the lie that we are unknown, we are set free from the need to spend our lives comparing ourselves to others and fitting ourselves to labels and standards of this world. We can see ourselves and see others for who we truly were meant to be. And we can see these prohibitions in a different light. The commands themselves can become reminders of the truth of Christ. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why? Because you are God's beloved. You are the bride of Christ. You are beautiful. You are precious. You are cherished. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Why? Because you are God's child, forgiven and adopted, safe and secure, provided for and protected. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. Why? Because your truest, fullest identity is yet to be revealed. It is too wonderful. It is too glorious for this world to handle, much less categorize and reduce with its labels. Brothers and sisters, do you feel that freedom to obey? Do you feel the freedom that comes from that truth? The freedom from the lives that enslave us to sin? This feeling of freedom only comes to me when I've spent time thinking about the truth of Christ and how it applies to the lies that I've been absorbing from the world around me and the earthly parts still within me. And of course, that's not terribly surprising given what Christ said back in John chapter eight. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The freedom we find in the truth comes as we abide in Christ's word. To put it another way, if we are serious about obeying Christ and the freedom of his truth, we must abide in his word. We must abide in his truth. We must settle into it. We must reflect upon it. We must submit to it. We must allow it to shape our thinking and to critique our opinions and to challenge our assumptions and to confront our lies. We must let the word have its way with us. Let it tell us about ourselves instead of the other way around. Let it dissect us instead of the other way around. And we must let it fill us up with truths that banish the lies that we are unloved and unsafe and unknown. We must let the truth set us free by replacing those lies. And we must help one another do this. Abiding in Christ's word can be difficult to do alone. Sometimes we need encouragement from others to persevere. Sometimes we need guidance from others to see things that we've missed. Sometimes we need correction from others to cover our blind spots. And sometimes we just need someone to talk to, someone who will listen to us, to help us progress our thinking to the next step, to process everything inside so that it can be in better alignment with the truth. And sometimes we need to be that person for someone else. I know I need this. I'm grateful to have found brothers and sisters here at PBCC who remind me of the truth and who hold me accountable and who let me do the same for them. Which of course makes me wonder, if we adults need this sort of help from one another, how much more do our children? And if we adults need reminders of the truth to resist the lies pressing in on us every day, how much more do our children who haven't had the years of learning and discerning that we have, who hear a lie and believe it to be true because they don't have the experience to know otherwise. One of my professors in seminary once asked us, have any of you ever crushed a can, one of those soda cans, once you've finished with its contents? And of course, at that point, we had all gone through college, and so we had plenty of opportunities to smash cans against things sometimes even our foreheads. <laughs> and it's surprisingly easy, isn't it? It's made of metal, and yet it just crumples so quickly. Then he asked us, try doing that with a can that's full. Try doing that with one you haven't opened yet. Of course, it's much harder to crush a filled can, isn't it? Because there's something on the inside to push against what's pushing in from the outside. 
In the same way, we need to be filling our hearts with the truth of Christ so that it can push back against all the lies that are coming in from all around. Now, brothers and sisters, our children need to know those truths too. It's the same thing for them. They need to be filled with the truth that they are loved, that they are safe, that they are seen and they are known, or else they're gonna come away from this world crushed, crushed by the lies that no one cares about them, that they don't belong anywhere, no one wants to know them. And we all know the kinds of attitudes and behaviors that lead to. Some of us have lived through that ourselves, and we wouldn't wish that on anybody else. So what an honor, what an opportunity has come to us now to be able to have the chance and the space and time and the opportunity to speak truths into the lives of our children, truths that can push back against these lies. Not everyone here is called to be a Sunday school teacher, but would you consider becoming one? Would you have that conversation with God and ask him if he's calling you into that kind of service? I'd like to invite our choir to return to this stage. And as they do, I wanna invite you to just imagine what our church would be like if we all found freedom in the truth of Christ. Freedom from fear, freedom from insecurity, freedom from self-hatred, freedom from lies, freedom to obey, freedom to love, freedom to serve, freedom to be what we were intended to be, to be something good, something beautiful, and something necessary to this disordered world. In a moment, we're gonna close our worship with a song led by the choir, but can, before we do that, can we take some time in silence, just imagining, just imagining that freedom, the freedom that we have because of the truth of Christ. Let's just hold that in our hearts and breathe that in as we close our service. Receive now this benediction. As you go out into this world, full of its lies and its untruths, its lies that you are unloved and unsafe and unknown, may God fill your hearts with the truth of Christ, remembering his rule and his return, knowing that you are loved, that you are held in his hand, and that your truest, fullest life will come when he returns. May that free you from sin to become what you were always intended to be. God bless you and be well.